Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. How are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm great, sir. It is a fantastic night, as they say. Would you like to get into some feedback? Let's do it. Our first piece of feedback comes in from do, 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 Bloomstrong. Bloomstrong writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Regarding Arch Linux keyring issue that you had with the Pine Tab 2, I have had the exact same issue with Arch Linux LXC images on Proxmox. That included the keyring that is too old to trust the current keyring, and so it cannot be updated. I've also found that it's very easy to work around this issue. In the bottom of Etsy slash you'll find a SIG level equals optional, trust all. Include this under core and extra and you can install whatever you want. So after the update of keyring, Pac-Man, TAC, capital S, lowercase y, Arch Linux dash keyring, you'll likely need to confirm each new key, but after that, you can remove the signal, sig level optional trust all from core and extra and finish with the updates with Pac-Man, TAC, capital S, lowercase y, u. This worked for getting 2022 and 2021 images up to date last month. Thanks for your time, Bloomstruck. So, Steve, this is actually a really cool little piece of advice, a little tidbit. Any downsides you see? I mean, if you forget to turn it off, it it removes the packet, the benefits of the packet signing, the package signing in Arch. So, I mean, don't leave it off. So, part of me thinks I I, I get to the point that I say to myself, well. Here's the deal. I, if I'm going to, once I have to resort to things like turning off signature, signatures and stuff like that, then I, I feel like I get a little nervous. Although if it's just the Arch Linux keyring, you could, in theory, use Pac-Man to do a download only and make sure that it has the, the cryptographic signing that you expect it to have. Mm -hmm. Then turn it off and just use Pacman-U to install the package you just downloaded and verified yourself. Then you go back into your Etsy Pacman.conf and uh, turn back on the key signing. Very good. So we'll have all of that in the show notes of podcast.snowshow.com. You can check it out there. Our second email comes in from John. John writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. In the morning, our church is looking to upgrade its presentation and streaming PC. I want to put forward some open source options if possible. We're currently running Easy Worship, PowerPoint, and streaming to YouTube via Chrome. The camera is attached via Sling Studio, which is operated from an iPad. The video stream comes to the PC over Wi-Fi from Sling Studio. On the software side, I've started to look into OpenLP for the service manager, LibreOffice Impress for the PowerPoint, and Whimsy World for Whimsy World OBS Studio Portable for the YouTube plugin. And he gives a link to it for the live streaming. Upgrading the PC and networking is definitely required. What are your thoughts? Any recommendations? So, Steve, off the bat, do you have anything that you would throw out there for John? 
Well, the first thing that I that jumped out at me is the video streams are coming in over Wi-Fi. Yeah, that that would be something I would be looking to address fairly short order. I would think maybe it doesn't cause you problems. But to me, the the video stream needs to be over a wired connection um, just because of the large amount of packets that happen during a video broadcast and getting them out of order and having them reset causes those little jags. You know, like when you get the distortion in your in your video from time to time when that happens. And so you have a higher likelihood of having those problems over Wi-Fi just because, I don't know, someone turned on a microwave near the the access point. So I, I would start with this. So there, there's a lot of things that you could do here and there's different solutions for every budget. So I, I guess I would keep that. I, 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 would, I would park that in the back of my head. But if. I were working with the church and we were going from scratch. So the first thing is you talk about OpenLP. OpenLP will work and it is an open source piece of software and it's fine. And so if it meets your needs, by all means, I would highly recommend uh, you take a look at the app called FreeShow. FreeShow is designed against the proprietary alternative ProPresenter. And if I do say so myself, they have apps. It's, it's as if somebody sat down in front of the UI from ProPresenter and went, how do we make an open source clone of this piece of software? And that's what FreeShow is. The advantage there is the vast majority of your church projectionists or the people that are coming in to quote unquote do slides, right? Those people are going to probably be familiar with ProPresenter or if they've worked in other churches, they might have some familiarity with ProPresenter. And so I would definitely check out FreeShow. And the second thing is, so you talk about, as Steve pointed out, bringing your video stream in via Wi-Fi, not really super ideal. I, again, I get it, different budgets for different places and different setups work. And so if you've got something that works, by all means, leave that in production until you find a better way. But what I would encourage you to do in the strongest possible way, instead of bringing in the video stream via the uh, via Wi-Fi and via a proprietary uh, uh contraption, what I would do is I would either bring it in via SDI PCI capture, HDMI PCI capture, or you could use a dedicated USB bus PCI card and then bring them in via USB capture as long as you're putting each separate USB stream on a separate USB bus. And for more information, we'll have a previous episode linked. We kind of went over the capture side of it in that episode. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. And there's some links in the show notes there for you as well. As far as actually getting uh, in and out. So the advantage of doing that and, 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 and how this process all kind of scales together. So if you start with an OBS system and let's say you have a quad SDI capture card. So now you can take four video sources in. So camera, that's one source. Free show, that becomes a second source. So you can have a second machine that's doing free show and have the output of that feed a couple of things. You can either feed a black magic matrix, which will allow you to send specific sources up to your screens as well as hit your output stream, as well as when you're doing free show, you can have a slide. So for example, during the worship service, you might want the words to be up on the projector. But then once the pastor starts speaking, maybe you don't want the words from OpenLP on there, you want the projector, the camera for the pastor. This is known as iMag or image magnification. And so when you're doing iMag to, to where you have a camera that is pulling something from the room and then putting it up on the screen, that's where OBS is going to become your friend and, a, and an SDI matrix is going to become your friend because you'll be able to dynamically choose what do I want sent to different places. The other thing that FreeShow is going to get you that is hugely beneficial is a confidence monitor. And essentially, 
A confidence monitor is a screen that you'd put at the back of the worship center, and the idea being that the person on stage can watch that back confidence monitor, and they get real-time notes of what's happening, as well as it will show slides corresponding to what is on the main screen. So the person scrolling through slides doesn't have to pay attention to making sure that so-and-so's notes or so-and-so's chords or so-and-so whatever. They're just clicking through, and the confidence monitor is going to change with what's at the front of the church. So have OBS, bring all the sources in, allow OBS to do all the switching. Well, then you become then then you run into a new issue. And the new issue is, well, how do you effectively switch scenes in OBS? And there's a fantastic little device out there called the Stream Deck. And the Stream Deck is a very customizable device made built by a company called Elgato. And Elgato makes the Stream Deck that has a number of different buttons and you can assign those buttons. It's essentially a backed LED screen and it has buttons and you can choose what you want to be displayed behind each button. So you can have an image, you can have text, you can have color, and then you can assign those buttons using something called BitFocus Companion. BitFocus Companion allows you to assign buttons from the Stream Deck to actions inside of OBS. And so you have the opportunity to then switch different scenes and run back and forth and say like, I want scene one to go, I want scene two, scene three, scene four, camera, pro, or, um, free show, whichever, you pick that on, on the stream deck and it will automatically do all the switching for you up on the screen. Better yet, you can set OBS up to do something called studio mode. And what that will allow you to do is you can actually have two displays. One is preview and one is program. So you can call something up in, like you can call free show up. Yep. That looks the way I want it. Okay. And then you can hit either a hard cut and go straight over into program. So it's going out over the stream and going up on your screens in the church, or you can do like a slow fade, push it up. Oh, actually that's not the right scene. That's not what I wanted. I want this camera instead. Okay. Well, you can switch that, make that mistake in preview where only you and the tech team can see it. Then when you're ready, hit the button, send it out over the air. So those projects together are going to allow you to do some are, are going to allow you to put together a really professional look uh, to your church. You pair that with something like Scale Engine, which will allow you to embed the stream right into your church's website. And the advantage of doing that is you're not sending people to this other platform and you also don't have to worry about any of the content restrictions that they may or may not have. You don't have to worry if they agree or disagree with your message. You own it and you're driving traffic to your own website. Scale Engine will handle all of that for you. And if you wanted to take it one step further, you could do something like Owncast to where you would host that end yourself. Hopefully that answers your question. Again, 855-450-NOAH's number to join us, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Brian writes in says, hey guys, I absolutely love the show. I'm working on building a website for myself to promote my skills and my services. Do you or Steve have any web platforms that they like? And if so, which one? I have some experience with HTML, but not much. Steve, do you have a, uh, a website at all? I don't have a website. If I was going to do this, I probably would hack something in JavaScript, but okay. um, <clears throat> don't take my advice for that. Uh, there are plenty of frameworks out there. So if you're not looking to make a project out of it to learn something yourself, I would say at least to start out, there's all kinds of stuff uh, out there that will help you get something simple up. I know that Hugo is one of the ones that gets recommended a lot for static website generation you could you could do wordpress like there's a ton of places out there that will do that kind of hosting i guess it depends on what exactly you need out of your website and and that will determine how flashy or not you need it to be 855-450-NOAH that's 855-450-6624 uh email live at 
AskNoahShow.com. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with Steve on, on, on Hugo. If you're looking for a project and you want to dig in and learn something, maybe JavaScript is a way to go. If you're just looking for an easy way to get a website off the ground, go Hugo.io. They have templates that make it really easy. You don't have to know HTML. Uh, you can use Markdown or you can just look at what they have and do a monkey see, monkey do. You can also join us in our interactive mumble uh, room. You can join mumble.mindrip1.com. Nailer joins us. Welcome in, sir. Your line is, I'm going to feed the genie. Nailer, do we have you? Oh, sorry. Hi. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, your phone line is actually down. I just tried to call it again, and it says, I'm sorry, we're currently not on the air. What? Uh, what's your question? Mumble is an ideal way to get a hold of us anyway. Uh, my question is, so um, uh, according to your interview with the jmp.chat guy, uh, to episodes ago, uh, I went ahead and took the plunge and created me an account and, um, so far so good, except I can't get Lynn phone to work. And that's how he says he talks all day on the phone. And mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm missing. And I thought you said you did it. Can you point me in a direction? Yeah, I can actually. So Lynn phone can be kind of weird to set up the first time, right? So part of it is they're not terribly explicit on what they mean by username or, you know, what the user ID is, right? So are they talking about the phone number? Are they talking about the JMP username? Are they talking? So there, there's, there's a lot of, it's not, it's not terribly clear right off the bat. So what you need to do, have you set up your SIP credentials? Well, that's something else. Aren't I supposed to have like um, a chat with a bunch of commands in it? Yes. In my Chiagram app? Yes. I have the, uh, the snicket.chat folder there is nothing under commands. It's like they've all disappeared. Okay. So what you're looking for is in, in, in the, in the, in the Cheogram app, you should see Cheogram.com and you'll know that you're talking to the Cheogram bot because if you place a question mark, you're going to immediately get responded with a list of commands that you can run. You could also run info as the command and the bot's going to respond back and say, your account is active. Here's how much money is on your account. Here's your phone number and here's what your renewal is per month. So how, how did you add a payment method? You obviously did that through the bot, yeah? Well, I haven't added a payment method yet. I'm, I'm on the one-month free trial thing. Okay. So, the, the, so that, that's your first step is to establish communication with the bot, which is essentially Cheogram.com is the bot you're looking for. Once you have established that, the, what you'll do is you'll run the uh, reset SIP account. And what that will do is it will give you a SIP username and password. And my guess is if you had that information... It'll give you a domain to use to connect to a SIP server. It'll give you a SIP username. It'll give a SIP password. And from there, I suspect it'll, it would be easy runnings for you to plug that information into Linfoam. But I'm thinking that's the piece that you're missing is you need th those that SIP uh, information. Oh, okay. Okay. So I apparently maybe deleted the the chat with the bot and you said that's just chiagram.com so I can just add that as a chat back yeah, or... you can the easiest thing to do if I were you uh, Naylor what I would do is I would go to do the um, what would I do I would uh, I would do something that causes the bot to send me a message I would do they have the have you have you have you do they have a snicket have a web interface Maybe in um, I'm not sure. I did start a chat with them when I was having trouble getting uh, a game to work or Gaijim uh, because I kept mistyping my password. <laughs> and, I, you know, I pulled my password out and I found all those 
that, that info before, and I was given a SIP address with a long number and dot at jmp.cbc. Yeah. Yep, yep. I got all that. I plug all those credentials into Linphone, and nothing happens. I get an error. So is there another better uh, SIP desktop app you would, might recommend then? I don't, I'm not committed to Linphone. Mm. I would tell you so that there is there's a couple of them. Um, Linphone is probably the best one if you're looking for, uh, if you're looking for you know the open source go to works out of the box that kind of thing. And I suspect the issue with if it's not working when you're plugging that information in is almost certainly the SIP credentials. You might, if you're looking for a, a, a more polished experience, you might check up out Zoiper, Z-O-I-P-E-R. So Zoip I've used it in the past. Okay. Yeah. So they're not, you know, it's, they're not, they're proprietary, not open source. So there's that. However, it does a phenomenal job of making it real easy to understand. This is the username. This is the password. This is the domain. You're not guessing it. it at anything, all of the fields are very explicit and, and easy to operate. Okay, well, I'll uh, work on getting the bot talking to me again, and uh, I guess I'll just keep playing around with Linphone. I did use another one that he recommended even in the in the interview. However, it didn't work good at answering the phone. I could make phone calls with it, and everything sounded fantastic. Mm -hmm. But when the phone would ring and I would hit the button on the computer nothing would happen it would not connect it would hang up so and they even said something about they're they're still working on that and i don't remember the name of that app yeah so the the yeah and the and and i would i would tell you too the most reliable way to get incoming calls is through xmpp so through the cheogram app um out sip works really really well for outgoing um the downside there is if you're trying to do everything through the desktop, obviously have to use SIP because Limphone doesn't support XMPP and Gajim. Technically supports it, but there's a plugin that you have to install and it, it gets complicated quickly. So hopefully that answers your questions. Again, we'll entertain those questions live at asknoahshow.com or by calling 855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of July 25th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. The Linux 6.4 kernel has been released. Intel's new Arc driver in Linux boosts gaming performance by 11%. The Exodia OS team has recently updated their customized Arch-based distro for security testing. Proxmox Virtual Environment 8 is out. And other releases are PZIP 9.3, Darktable 4.4, Ardor 7.5, and Firewall D 2.0. GitLab has expanded its open source partner community with the addition of the Open Group. In security news, security researchers have discovered a sophisticated attack campaign that exploits a custom open source modified version of OpenSSH to target Linux-based systems and Internet of Things devices. In AI news, Databricks has agreed to buy Mosaic ML, a generative AI specialist that just released its MPT-30 an open source LLM model, and claims that it can outperform GPT-3. Integrated Healthcare has released Robin AI, an open source GitHub project that automatically reviews GitHub pull requests, providing a score, 0 to 100, suggested improvements, and sample code for improvement. And lastly, in hardware news, there's Dingo. Dingo was created as a capstone engineering product for the Bachelor of Robotics and Mechatronics Engineering at Monash University by students Nathan Ferguson and Alexander Calvert. Dingo is a quadruped robot 
intended for research and educational purposes. It resembles Boston Dynamics Spot, but at a small scale and a tiny fraction of the price. With a 3D printed body and a Raspberry Pi as its computer, it is fully open source and well documented to allow you to fork it. Mike McGrath, he is the vice president of core platform engineering at Red Hat and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Mike, welcome into the show. Hey, it's uh, it's great to be here. Glad to have you. So the Internet has kind of been in a stir since a blog post you made. I'm, I'm going to ask you to take us back to the beginning, to the original blog post. What was the original goal of Red Hat? What was the overall message that you all were trying to communicate and how was it initially received? Yeah, I, I have to admit, uh, I was surprised at how it was initially received, but basically I wrote a blog post that said that we were no longer going to publish our sources to git.centos.org. And so for those that don't know what that is, uh, when we produce a rel release, um, in addition to getting all the source ready and all the builds ready and getting that stuff all out to our customers, uh, we had also gone another step to basically debrand uh, or take all the Red Hat references out of the code, uh, put them into nice source RPM packages that could then be rebuilt, and we put them on the uh, git.centos.org site. So anybody that wanted to rebuild them could do that. And we basically decided that uh, we were going to stop doing that. And so we, we made a note, and uh, we put it out there. It was pretty straightforward. Um, and the other side of that was that uh, you know we've, we've still got CentOS Stream, which uh, is very popular and uh, uh, people have been using it. We've been using it with our, our partners. Um, you know, it's not exactly what CentOS was, uh, but it's something different and uh, we've been finding it very useful. Our partners have been finding it very useful and uh, the community has actually been able to engage with us there. And, uh, you know, the reaction uh, was very swift and immediate. Uh, you know, we knew that uh, some of the rebuilders out there would notice that this code wasn't getting updated uh, but because of Twitter and everything else, uh, I think they figured this out within about two hours uh, and uh, uh, had started you know, talking about you know, what they might want to do. And uh, Red Hat is killing rebuilders. And there was a pretty stark, uh, stark, very negative reaction uh, to what was going on there. And for me, I think I underestimated uh, the response in two ways. Uh, number one was I am really surprised uh, by the amount of conviction so many people have about the GPL, which appears to be something that we as an industry have kind of forgotten how it behaves. Um, there were plenty of people out there that weren't even defending Red Hat, but were defending the, the GPL. Uh, and so that was one thing that was surprising. There was just a ton of discussion after my first blog post about what the GPL says it does, what it does and doesn't do, all of that. And I think the second thing that I, I guess I didn't realize was that as far as I know, none of, the re, none of the rebuilders actually went over to look at CentOS Stream and tried to build it there. They all looked at other things. One of them said, well, we'll get our sources from Oracle. And some of them started looking at the subscription service and other things. Uh, it didn't occur to me that none of them would actually go and look at CentOS Stream, which is the same place that we build RHEL from. And so I think those two things combined uh, led to a, 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 we'll call it a very strong response on the internet. So if I, if I can, help me understand this. So you've moved the source code from 
Red Hat proper over to CentOS Stream. You can still get access to the Red Hat source code if you're a Red Hat customer and you're paying for a subscription. You can log in and get it that way. But outside of that, whereas you were previously uploading debranded Red Hat source code to the CentOS Git repository, now that's being handled differently. It is. Well, kind of, it, it, uh, well, for all intents and purposes, yes. We'd always, uh, for a couple of years now, we've had both CentOS Stream and the Git, uh, CentOS.org uh, Git repo. And we basically just turned that last one off. Now, I don't want to be disingenuous. This does make it harder to rebuild RHEL. Uh, there are tags and branches and things that you would expect to find in, uh, in, the, Git, uh, in the CentOS Stream Git source that aren't there. But the, the code to build, if you wanted to build a rebuild of some kind of RHEL, the code is there. We have it all out there. Um, we aren't asking rebuilders to do anything we don't do. But speaking from experience, it's pretty hard to go do that. And Red Hat has decided that we're not going not to do that anymore. And that was what that first blog post was about. Okay, since you opened the door, why do you want, what is the rationale for making it more difficult for rebuilders to come in and, and recompile your source code and release it as a different product? Well, that was the nature of the second blog post, which, uh, which went out uh, on Monday yesterday. And uh, in this one, we just had, we had a transparent, I had a transparent conversation um, about what we thought. And I, I really do mean it at the start of that blog post. Uh, I, um, went for a very long walk, just, you know, as you do, my mind was pretty occupied over the last several days with the strong backlash and I wanted to put to words what was on my mind. And so I wrote a blog post and had some, uh, uh, some trusted stakeholders at Red Hat review it for me to make sure the tone and messaging was right. And then we sent it. Uh, and in that, uh, in that blog post, we outlined several things. Um, one of which was specifically targeted at the rebuilders. Uh, which is that Red Hat, we do not, we no longer find any value in having a rebuilder. I'm not saying that other people may not have, uh, find value in a rebuilder, but for us at Red Hat, we don't, and therefore we don't see the need to go out of our way to do all that work, debranding and getting it ready and making sure that we're not accidentally shipping embargoes out and all this other stuff, uh, just so somebody can rebuild it. And so, so yeah, go ahead. Well, I guess my question is, so in the past, you've obviously found value in that in insofar as you went out of your way. In fact, in your blog post, you explicitly talk about Red Hat's history in doing that. And I guess my question to you would be, what changed? Uh, I think there were a couple of things that changed. One is that we've learned a lot in the last you know, decade or more of, of working in open source. I think that there's this mistakenly accepted conclusion that uh, a downstream rebuild of RHEL generates RHEL experts and generates uh, RHEL sales. And the fact is, when it plays out, uh, we have not actually found that. And you got to keep in mind, we have tons of free offerings already. We've got Fedora, we've got CentOS Stream, we've got multiple actual RHEL proper uh, offerings that are also free of cost. And so getting RHEL or one of our other offerings, that's never been the issue. And so uh, uh, I think uh, just, lear you know, just learning more and having a, a, an opinion or read out of how that all plays out was one thing. 
And I think the other part too is uh, after the CentOS stream and original CentOS Linux announcement, we had several other rebuilders sort of pop up. And, uh, you know, this, we paid a lot of attention to this and, uh, uh, and we just decided that they're, they're, uh, they're not providing any value beyond um, a free rel offering, which is what we also already provide. We would rather have them using all of rel instead of just this kind of rebuild of rel. And uh, I think one of the core, one of the core arguments that I've, I've started making more this week is this. Um, I think a lot of people are in an uproar and they're saying they're in an uproar about the free is in freedom aspect of this. Oh, we want the code. We demand the code. And the fact is the code is all out there. Um, none of the code that is in RHEL is private. We send all of our code upstream, uh, almost always to upstream proper first, if they'll take it. Some upstreams don't want to take, you know, our new patches to their, at that point, very old code, sometimes five or 10 years old. That is not what they're, they're arguing about. They're arguing about the free is in beer part of this, which is they want what they want the promise that Red Hat is making about that code, which is that we will pay engineers and program managers and everybody else to track several releases. We've got 14 different kernels right now. We will track all of these releases and we will keep them all up to date for a period of 10 years. And that is what they want. They want that promise. The code will be fine. Red Hat could vanish tomorrow and all of the code would still be out there. So I really don't think it's about the code. I think what they want is that Red Hat promise and that is a service that we provide. And in, in the process of providing that service, we make sure all of the code that we generate is upstream. And uh, uh, I stand, you know, we stand by that. I don't, I don't think this argument that Red Hat has somehow gone closed source holds water because it, it just doesn't play out. But if you think that the GPL states that you should get any open source product free of charge, I don't think the GPL says that. I wanted to give you a chance to respond to the idea that uh, open source is all about standing on the shoulders of giants and that Red Hat seems to be perfectly willing to stand on the shoulders of giants, but not let anybody stand on their own shoulders. You mentioned the source code and, and recompiling it. Um, aside from tags and stuff like that, the source code is still out there. Like if I wanted to, I could go out and figure out where the code is and go compile it. Is that still true? It is, yeah. So then can you respond to the idea that Red Hat wants to stand on top of the shoulders of other giants in the open source industry, but are not particularly interested having anybody else stand on top of uh, their shoulders? I love this question, and this gets at to the heart of the open source ecosystem and the open source community. If you want to go fork Fedora or fork CentOS Stream and make significant changes to it or even minor changes to it, go do it. Come compete with us on a, on a fair playing field. I love it. We've got uh, plenty of competition out there already. SUSE, Canonical, Microsoft's in the game now with, uh, with options. Whether they're commercially competing with us or, or just from a community point of view competing with us, that's great. Um, I actually just saw an announcement recently about SUSE. They've got uh, user space live patching. Kudos, you guys. We don't have that. It's driving the industry forward. But if you just want to take our code, put your logo on it, and by definition of your own mission, make no changes of any kind, 
And then on top of that, you want to go sell support for that? I don't know. That seems shady. That's what I've got a real problem with. Um, you know, different people at Red Hat have different opinions about some of this stuff. I actually don't mind the idea of a free rebuild. Uh, I kind of accept that as the cost of doing business um, in, uh, in open source. But when people take those rebuilds and start going beyond that, I've got a problem with that because they're, they're, that is a real threat to the ecosystem because the people that are actually fixing, and, uh, fixing, those, fixing the code and producing those patches, like we pay them to do that. And so I think that from a, from a business point of view, that is where some of this, this conflict is coming from. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, you want to come, you know, stand on, stand on the shoulders of giants and you want to take our code and fork it and make it better and all kinds of other stuff. We will see you upstream. I will welcome you with open arms and we will work with you to commit those patches upstream and you can help us commit our patches upstream. That's the way it normally works. But again, if your sole mission is to be an exact copy of something else, you haven't actually contributed anything to the community at large. And at this point, I think that they are now taking away from the work that Red Hat is doing. A uh, person in the chat room says, why not start with explanations that came from Mike McGrath's second blog post on the issue? It felt to me, at least, that it was much more transparent than the first post. Yeah, no, that's a fair, that's a fair comment. Listen, even inside at Red Hat, everybody loves to armchair quarterback uh, what message we should have had after they already know how everybody is going to respond. And so like, I don't, you know, I can't predict the future. You know, I honestly, like I said earlier, I, we almost didn't send an update at all, but we put together a blog post at least stating what we were going to do in case somebody had questions. Uh, I, you know, I grossly underestimated the response on that. Um, I mentioned earlier in your first question, why, you know, a lot of confusion around the GPL. Mm-hmm. And I'm really surprised they didn't go look at CentOS Stream as a, as a place to rebuild. I think if that had happened, it would have been a much lesser uh, notice. As far as I know, none of the rebuilders had said they're going to close up shop at this point. I mean, maybe they're still figuring out what to do. But uh, yeah, I think the other thing too was uh, the second blog post, I think, came out of a lot of soul searching and, and discussion. Red Hat has never had a blog post that kind of combines the combines our the business side of our thoughts with the open source side of our thoughts quite in that way before. And I think that's why it struck such a tone because there, you know, there, there is, there is room for both, but it is a balance. Why not act immediately as opposed to keeping it going for rel nine, at least until the version reach maintenance support. Uh, when you say act immediately, uh, what do you mean? So why not make the change immediately as opposed to uh, going for rel nine? We did well. We did make the change immediately. So at the moment, for uh, all of the, with the exception of CentOS seven, which is going to continue on its normal life and 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 end uh, sometime in twenty twenty four, at the moment, none of CentOS or none of Rel eight and none of Rel 9's down quote unquote downstream code is going to be in uh, in the git.centos.org space. Any code that was there will remain, but we're not pushing any updates to it. Okay. And uh, for both CentOS Stream 8 and CentOS Stream 9, that's where you can find the code. And of course, on the, just like I said, in the, uh, uh, the customer portal for customers that have a login, uh, they can also get the code from there for GPL reasons. There seems to be a difference in your mind in between Red Hat customers and downstream rebuilds. 
as it relates to your paying customers, Red Hat customers who have an active support agreement, are they entitled to the source code under the licensing agreement? And do you believe that you're meeting that requirement? Yes, they are. They can get it. Uh, they can get the full code anytime they want. Um, and, and that is theirs to get. And I want to be clear. Let's, let's be very clear just in case uh, we head down this path. Um, RHEL, Red Hat Enterprise Linux, uh, that is a product. CentOS Stream, uh, some of those downstream rebuilders, Fedora, those are projects. Uh, and that is a very important distinction for us at Red Hat. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, if you are a if you are a customer of Red Hat or even a non-paying customer, right, you can go get your free 16 free developer subscriptions uh, for any individual right now can go get those. I use them at home. They're fine. Um, and you can get the source that way as well. Are, how has Red Hat navigated the use of GPL software now that they aren't making their source available to everybody? Uh, actually, the, the way that we, this may be a surprise to some people because they made some assumptions, but we haven't actually changed the way that we comply with the GPL as part of this. Git.centos.org was never part of our GPL compliance plan. Uh, it was always part of our rebuilder plan. And so we, we had it when we thought rebuilders were useful. And now that uh, we don't think that that's, uh, we don't see any use in it anymore, uh, we're not going to do it. But our GPL compliance uh, requirements haven't changed as part of this. Are you able to discuss or go into the details of timing? When did this start to become an idea inside of Red Hat? And when was it, I guess, more or less, when did the, the thought of this start? So I think the, the, the problem of rebuilders predates my role uh, where I am at Red Hat. <laughs> I actually was originally a, a Fedora contributor uh, and volunteer prior to becoming uh, a Red Hat employee. And so for, for as long as I've been in any sort of leadership or architecture position uh, at Red Hat, we've talked about uh, the downstream rebuilders. And at some point in time there, somebody, you know, this is before my time, somebody said, hey, we've got a, uh, the CentOS project is in in a bit of a jam right now. Back then, and I don't remember all the timelines and everything, but I seem to remember thinking somebody ran off with a bunch of money and then showed back up again. And it was taking a really long time to get builds out. Um, I forget how that played out. Go, you, you can go Google it. Uh, but at the time there were some problems in the, you know keeping that infrastructure up and going. And, uh, and so Red Hat came in and sponsored them and it was, it's been fine. We, you know, we still have a lot of those uh, uh, CentOS contributors are Red Hat. Some of them are still working on CentOS and some of them are, have moved on to uh, other things at Red Hat. And, uh, uh, you know, around the time that we created, uh, but, but the problem is, I'd say maybe four or five years ago-ish, we realized that the CentOS community that we have, that we were hoping would be a thriving thing, wasn't really like the Fedora community. Uh, the Fedora community is great. They do plenty of stuff that bugs me. Uh, looking at, at you, whoever put uh, ButterFS as the default, uh, but they're a community project. They're, they're allowed to do that. And, uh, and we have a great relationship with everybody in Fedora, and Fedora has just been killing it lately. But when we looked at CentOS, the whole thing was users. It was all users. Now, there were a few SIGs, and there were some board members that were doing amazing things and rebuilds. I do not want to discredit that work. But the, and just in terms of the numbers, the number of contributors compared to the number of, of users was extremely lopsided. 
And so we kind of realized this is not a healthy community. And that's where CentOS Stream came from. And I think by all accounts, people appreciate and like CentOS Stream for what it is. It's a place to come and contribute to the next version of RHEL. Um, it's great for CI environments. It's great for, you know, for just casual use. I've got it on my laptop. It's been working fine. Um, but that finally was a place where people could actually contribute to uh, Red Hat. Because part of the way we had CentOS set up was pretty useless. If you had a bug, you didn't really even have a way to open up a bug against CentOS. You had to go open it upstream in, in maybe Fedora. And if you're lucky, a few years later, it would be fixed. Because that was, you know, Red Hat sells support for that kind of thing. If you want us to fix your bug, you got to pay for support. Well, flash forward uh, uh, a couple years, and uh, that was kind of when we decided that you know downstream a downstream rebuild of RHEL is not useful. I don't think we had the clarity that my blog post had this week, but that's basically what it was. We didn't see any reason to do it anymore, and so that was a huge blow up, huge big news. Lots of people very upset, <clears throat> and that spawned these new uh, these new downstream rebuilds. We decided wait, let's see how it plays out, and uh, you know we've got people like Almi and Raka, or I'm sorry, uh, Alma and Rocky have popped up, and uh, Oracle's been around forever. And, you know, there's some other smaller ones that popped up and uh, we're watching them and that's fine. But really more over the last uh, uh, couple of months, uh, we saw just we saw some things that we thought were being done in bad faith. Um, not necessarily from the technical side of some of these organizations, but more from the, we'll say, the money making side of these organizations. And we decided to get together and figure out what to do about it. And uh, uh, we came up with the announcement that I released last week and kind of doubled down on with more context this week. And so that's uh, that's where we landed. Can I ask, what things were you seeing that gave you pause in the way of, of I think, as you put it, on the money-making side? I'm just going to say it's shenanigans. And I, I don't want to, like, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. You know, they were out trying to make a quick buck and do what they do. Um, but, uh, but we had a problem with it, and so I'll just leave it at that. Can you speak to the threat uh, to open source companies of rebuilding code without any adding any value or changing it in, in any way, right? Like there's this idea of, we talk about standing on the shoulder of giants. That, that's one thing to say, hey, this giant built this thing. Man, that's a really useful starting point for me to start my thing. So I stand on the giant and then I build my own thing. Even if my own thing is, is a teeny tiny thing compared to the original giant, it's a thing. And it's possible because you're allowing me to stand on your shoulder. So I think we can all kind of understand that analogy. When we're literally talking about duplicating the giant after one person has paid to put the giant up, seems like there might be a threat there to the business model. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I, this was something I just, in thinking about the entire ecosystem and thinking about what was really bothering me about all of this, uh, <clears throat> I came to realize that uh any, any highly successful company or product could be at threat from uh, downstream rebuilds. And it's not like any one of our downstream rebuilds has been particularly wildly successful. That's not the point. Uh, because the point is the end game. What is, the, what is the, the value of them? And I'm sure there's a lot of people in the community say, well, I got introduced because of CentOS, or I got introduced because of this or that, or... I don't, I can't abide by your terms, or I just don't want to give you an email to be part of your, to be in your, in your Red Hat system. That's fine. But Red Hat is not a total, total global domination company. Red Hat has, a, Linux in particular, has always been about choice. And so uh, I, I think, you know, go, going back to the core question here, 
there's plenty of choices out there, but people wanted RHEL. They wanted the promise of RHEL, a lot of them, not everybody, but a lot of them. But they didn't want to pay for RHEL and they didn't want to use anything else. And so I'm not saying there's not demand there, uh, but I'm also saying that we don't, you know, Red Hat's not trying to solve everybody's problems all the time. And we've been working really, really hard over the last several years to make sure that RHEL is more available than ever to more people. We have UBI, for example, which is freely redistributable. And once it's on a RHEL system, it's also fully supported. It's kept up to date. It has a whole lot of RHEL in it. It's not the whole RHEL, but it's a lot of it. We have our developer programs. We have our academic programs. We have our uh, uh, RHEL for open source infrastructure programs. We have all of these things to make actual proper RHEL available and usable by people. Uh, but there's also, a, you know, there's certainly a class of people that maybe they don't, maybe they don't like Red Hat for whatever reason, but they want all the benefits that Red Hat brings. Or like I said, maybe they just don't want to provide an email address. There's like two dozen Linux distros out there that meet your needs. Uh, I don't know why, uh, why they feel entitled to a downstream rebuild that has Red Hat's promise on it, but they don't want to actually participate in the system that makes that makes those contributions and make that long life makes that long life cycle possible because the fact is a lot of upstreams don't they don't want to do that work upstreams don't want to deal with can you imagine what a nine-year-old docker would be like right now uh <laughs> customers don't want to deal with these or i'm sorry uh upstreams don't want to deal with these long life cycles we do it and there's value in it and so you know it just it's a it's a cold hard truth but that's that's what it is and so i i think it represents a real threat to any uh any open source company that become successful enough that someone will simply take their code, do an exact rebuild of it with different logos, and then you know sell support for it and try to make a quick buck. Uh, I think that, that that workflow and business model, while okay according to the licenses and, and standards, is not good for the ecosystem. And so we we drew a line in the sand here. And, and uh, I think uh, time will tell whether or not we're right on this or not. I think we are. So Mike, I'd like you to step back a little bit. I heard you talk about <clears throat> the different ways you can get RHEL. And some of the people in our chat room have been asking things about what does this mean for people that are using the downstreams uh, in the CI process? For people that are using downstream rebuilds in their CI process, uh, I, you know, I'm not sure you'd have to go talk to them. We actually still don't know what uh, uh, what those downstreams are gonna be doing. But in terms of CI, uh, CentOS Stream is great for CI environment because you'll get to find out things before we've broken them. You can even report them before they break in RHEL. Like if we've broken something in CentOS Stream, let us know so that we can fix it before it hits RHEL proper. Uh, and then also on the, you know, you should definitely go and talk with, uh, if you're using RHEL in a production environment, you should definitely go and talk with your account managers and things about what options exist for you on production versus non-production environments. A lot of those non-production environments are virtual uh, machines. There are tons of ways to get extremely cheap or free RHEL, especially in non-production environments. Um, if, and you know, I don't, hopefully none of the, none of the salespeople are listening in, but if, if somebody has sold you a bunch of production licenses and you're using them all over the place, including on your workstation and, uh, uh, and in your you know, staging and development environments, uh, there may be better options for you and you should probably go discuss that with them. 
it seems to me that I, I recall at some point that Red Hat makes some special accommodation for open source projects when using RHEL. Um, can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, you know, we, we've been working really hard to make RHEL more accessible to more types of people, um, especially your non-traditional, uh, you know, people that aren't, you know, large enterprises. Uh, one of those is the Red Hat Enterprise Linux for open source infrastructure uh, program. And basically, if you're running an open source project of any kind, you can get uh, no cost RHEL, uh, the same stuff everybody else uses in, in a real production environment, and you can use it for free. It is of no, you know, no cost at all. Um, for your project. And so whether or not you're doing CI or you want to do other development or you just want a, a stable uh, uh, server to run your, you know, your, your Git repos on, um, we have an option for that. And it's called, it's called ROSI uh, for short, R-O-S-I, but it is the Red Hat Enterprise Linux for open source infrastructure is the full name of the, the program. Innovation happens in the upstream and building on the shoulders of others what open source is all about. Some people might say, well, that's true as long as they're not upstream for somebody else. And in that case, Red Hat doesn't particularly care for it. It seems like they want to be the bottom rung on the ladder and have no one else under them. Do you believe that's an accurate depiction of Red Hat? And if so, do you believe that that's in the spirit and the letter of open source? No, I think this, this gets back to my comment earlier about a forking versus rebuilding. Um, if you're actually going to build, you know, let's just say Red Hat's a giant. I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you. Um, but let's just say you're going to build on the shoulders of Red Hat. You got to go build something. You got to make it different somehow. Don't just take what we've done and put your logo on it. Um, I think that's, uh, that's really, I, I really do feel that way. If you're going to fork us, if you're going to make some change, maybe you've got uh, kernel optimizations that you would like to build a distro for. Go do that instead. That at least is something that we could work on. You know, that's something that at least benefits the community. Um, but if the sole mission of a downstream rebuild is to be exactly like Red Hat, uh, I don't. I just don't get it. I'm, I'm not sold that that is uh, that that is valuable for Red Hat. This is obviously going to come up, so I'm I'm just going to ask it directly. What role, if any, did IBM have in the decision? Not a single person from IBM has come and discussed this with me either before or after any of my blog posts. Um, there you go. That's that's as definitive as I can get. Okay. So it is literally about Red Hat trying to do what's right for the people that you guys employ that put in a lot of hard hours and a lot of hard work to develop a really solid product. Let me just ask this. If there was a rebuilder that wanted to, could they sign up for you know, a subscription, get access to the source code, download the Red Hat source code and, and go that route. I mean, it's going to be more work because you're compiling it yourself and you're going to have to do all the debranding yourself, but it's a harder road to hoe, so to speak. But is it possible? Uh, they could. I think that they would find if they attempted to uh, continue to use our, you know, if they continue to use their subscription, I think that they would find they'd have difficulties with that. But, um, you know, I, uh, I, yeah, I don't really know what else to say about it. There's, there's an aspect there that, uh, as far as I know, nobody's tried it. Um, but I would, I would not encourage them to do that. We've got CentOS Stream. Go build it from the place that we build it from. We're not asking rebuilders to do anything that we don't do ourselves. Okay. So, essentially, the, if, if I've understood this conversation correctly, it could surmise it to say Red Hat is still building code out in the open. It's done over on CentOS Stream. Once it gets solidified there, you and any other rebuilders are welcome to pick from that pool, so to speak, 
and customize to your needs. Red Hat is going to continue to do that the same way you guys have been doing it for the last few decades, which is you take the code, you solidify it, you wrap an incredible support infrastructure around it, you sell that support infrastructure and the value add to your clients and help them build in solutions. When people need experts, you pay, pair them with the experts. You're just asking other people now to go to the same pool to get source code that you guys are doing with Red Hat. Is that, would that be an accurate summation of our conversation? Yeah, I think that's accurate. And you mentioned CentOS Stream. I just want to make sure this is clear because there's so much confusion around CentOS Stream. Uh, it used to be that CentOS was a clone of RHEL back in the day or a rebuild of RHEL. It's probably more accurate to say these days that RHEL is a rebuild of CentOS Stream at this point. Uh, and so, you know, CentOS Stream is changing every day, sometimes several times a day. It is not a place where we're doing our tests. People say it's a beta or an alpha of RHEL, whatever. No, when our coders get done with the, with the, with code and it makes it through CI and we think that it's ready to be released to customers, we put it in CentOS Stream first. And then every six months, we release what CentOS Stream has and uh, that becomes RHEL. That's basically how we put RHEL together. And so, sure, if you're trying to build a rebuild, maybe what is on the head of of the GitLab won't match what was in uh, in RHEL, uh, but it's a Git repo. Some One of the older commits has what you're looking for. That's fine. And even more than that, if you find some bug or if you find something in CentOS Stream, if, you know, if you've got some application or something that worked uh, in RHEL and suddenly it's not working in CentOS Stream, that means we're going to have a bug in RHEL soon. Open a bug. Let us know so we can fix it. Um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen a ton, but it, you know, it does happen just like we release bugs in RHEL too. But that, that is just how close the relationship is between CentOS Stream and RHEL. It's not like Fedora. It, you know, Fedora is a different beast with its own lifecycle and everything else. CentOS Stream is inextricably tied to our development process. If we had a major outage in CentOS Stream, we would not be able to release RHEL anymore. It, it is in the critical path for how we develop RHEL. Is there a plan to give rebuilders a path to migrate from existing rebuild installs to CentOS, CentOS Stream? Uh, we have a we have a migration tool. Uh, I know that from CentOS that works. I don't I don't remember if we've got a support for Rocky to RHEL or for I think definitely I think Oracle to RHEL works. Um, so you can come and look, and that we're uh, we've got you know if you if you happen to have a large environment and you're done with. Uh, uh, done with a free version, you want full support. Um, that is definitely an area that uh, that we have a tool for that will come and work and it's fully supported. And we welcome you to try that. The end beta in the chat room asks, from the view of Red Hat, what is Red Hat selling when they sell Red Hat Enterprise Linux? What is the value proposition of that product and what separates Red Hat Enterprise Linux from the product of CentOS Stream and the sum of the contributions from the community in Red Hat? So uh, just to reemphasize this, Red Hat Enterprise Linux is a product uh, and uh, CentOS Stream is a project. And so with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, the product, uh, what you're buying is the support. You're buying access to our services, to our portal. Um, you're buying access to the, uh, uh, to the ecosystem that we have, all the certifications that go into RHEL. Uh, Red Hat doesn't certify any uh, any of our community projects. We do all of our certification work on RHEL proper. And that includes CentOS Stream. CentOS Stream does not have any certifications as well. Uh, you're also buying access to insights, uh, several services that we've been putting up, getting access to our support crew, all of our documentation, all that stuff, a lot of which is available to you even at the free tier. And so uh, you get all of that. 
with CentOS Stream, you just kind of get the bits and you're on your own. And so that's, uh, that's the key difference uh, between them. What kind of impact do you think this will have on some of the broader ecosystem like a um, like an Oracle Linux? Do you think there's going to be much of any change? Um, I'm not obviously asking you f- to kind of project for them necessarily, but I'm wondering whether we think that there's a, a change in the dynamic between Red Hat and the competitors or whether or not um, Oracle specifically was even a consideration when when looking at this decision? Uh, the, the truthful answer is, I don't know. I'm kind of waiting to see what they want to do. You know, we don't, we don't control those communities. They've got very capable people um, and engineers that can, can go and try to, uh, to do a build. If I could wave a magic wand, what I would have them do is come join CentOS Stream, create a SIG of some kind, and build some kind of differentiated offering that Red Hat and CentOS Stream don't already have. I don't know what that would be. Maybe it's a new, uh, you know, maybe it's a new, uh, highly optimized uh, device, uh, you know, edge device kind of thing. I don't know. They're, you know, whatever they may come up with, I don't know. Um, but that's probably not going to happen. I suspect that they will continue to look at some way to be as close to a free Red Hat as possible, and uh, you know, we'll we'll figure out what to do if anything at that time. Mike McGrath, he is the vice president of core platform engineering at Red Hat Nagessis Hour on the Ask Noah show. Mike, I really appreciate your time. I'm sure this past week has been relatively stressful being on the on the front lines of the Internet, so to speak. So we appreciate you taking the time and being able to give answers directly to people on, on questions that are happening at Red Hat. We wish you all the best of luck and we'll get you back on the program soon. Thanks. I appreciate the time. And it's been uh, great to help get the message out in voices instead of blog posts. Appreciate it. The music in our ears means we're out of time. I thank you for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. You can get the show notes by going to podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the resources that we used to put the show together, as well as past episodes, which you can download at your leisure. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.